Mr. Justice Black, dissenting. The appellant was tried for murder in a California state court. He did not take the stand as a witness in his own behalf. The prosecuting attorney, under purported authority of a California statute, argued to the jury that an inference of guilt could be drawn because of appellant's failure to deny evidence offered against him. The appellant's contention in the state court, and here, has been that the statute denies him a right guaranteed by the federal constitution. The argument is that, one, permitting comment upon his failure to testify has the effect of compelling him to testify, so as to violate that provision of the Bill of Rights contained in the Fifth Amendment that no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, and although this provision of the Fifth Amendment originally applied only as a restraint upon federal courts, the Fourteenth Amendment was intended to and did make the prohibition against compelled testimony applicable to trials in state courts. The court refuses to meet and decide the appellant's first contention. But while the court's opinion, as I read it, strongly implies that the Fifth Amendment does not, of itself, bar comment upon the failure to testify in federal courts, the court nevertheless assumes that it does in order to reach the second constitutional question involved in appellant's case. I must consider the case on the same assumption that the court does. For the discussion of the second contention turns out to be a decision which reaches far beyond the relatively narrow issues on which this case might have turned. This decision reasserts a constitutional theory spelled out in Twining v. New Jersey, that this court is endowed by the Constitution with boundless power under natural law, periodically to expand and contract constitutional standards to conform to the court's conception of what, at a particular time, constitutes civilized decency and fundamental liberty and justice. Invoking this twining rule, the court concludes that, although comment upon testimony in a federal court would violate the Fifth Amendment, identical comment in a state court does not violate today's fashion in civilized decency and fundamentals, and is therefore not prohibited by the federal constitution as amended. The Twining case was the first, as it is the only, decision of this court which has squarely held that states were free, notwithstanding the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, to extort evidence from one accused of crime. I agree that, if Twining be reaffirmed, the result reached might appropriately follow. But I would not reaffirm the Twining decision. I think that decision and the natural law theory of the Constitution upon which it relies degrade the constitutional safeguards of the Bill of Rights and simultaneously appropriate for this court a broad power which we are not authorized by the Constitution to exercise. Furthermore, the Twining decision rested on previous cases and broad hypotheses, which have been undercut by intervening decisions of this court. My reasons for believing that the Twining decision should not be revitalized can best be understood by reference to the constitutional, 
judicial, and general history that preceded and followed the case. That reference must be abbreviated far more than is justified, but for the necessary limitations of opinion writing. The first ten amendments were proposed and adopted largely because of fear that government might unduly interfere with prized individual liberties. The people wanted and demanded a Bill of Rights written into their Constitution. The amendments embodying the Bill of Rights were intended to curb all branches of the federal government in the fields touched by the amendments, legislative, executive, and judicial. The Fifth, Sixth, and Eighth Amendments were pointedly aimed at confining exercise of power by courts and judges within precise boundaries, particularly in the procedure used for the trial of criminal cases. Past history provided strong reasons for the apprehensions which brought these procedural amendments into being and attest the wisdom of their adoption. For the fears of arbitrary court action sprang largely from the past use of courts in the imposition of criminal punishments to suppress speech, press, and religion. Hence, the constitutional limitations of courts' powers were, in the view of the founders, essential supplements to the First Amendment, which was itself designed to protect the widest scope for all people to believe and to express the most divergent political, religious, and other views. But these limitations were not expressly imposed upon state court action. In 1833, Baron v. Baltimore was decided by this court. It specifically held inapplicable to the states that provision of the Fifth Amendment which declares, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. In deciding the particular point raised, the court there said that it would not hold that the first eight amendments applied to the states. This was the controlling constitutional rule when the Fourteenth Amendment was proposed in 1866. My study of the historical events that culminated in the Fourteenth Amendment and the expressions of those who sponsored and favored, as well as those who opposed, its submission and passage, persuades me that one of the chief objects that the provisions of the amendment's first section, separately and as a whole, were intended to accomplish was to make the Bill of Rights applicable to the states. With full knowledge of the import of the Barron decision, the framers and backers of the 14th Amendment proclaimed its purpose to be to overturn the constitutional rule that case had announced. This historical purpose has never received full consideration or exposition in any opinion of this court interpreting the amendment. In construing other constitutional provisions, this court has almost uniformly followed the precept of ex parte Bain that it is never to be forgotten that in the construction of the language of the Constitution, as indeed in all other instances where construction becomes necessary, we are to place ourselves as nearly as possible in the condition of the men who framed that instrument. 
investigation of the cases relied upon entwining v. New Jersey to support the conclusion there reached that neither the Fifth Amendment's prohibition of compelled testimony nor any of the Bill of Rights applies to the states reveals an unexplained departure from this salutary practice. Neither the briefs nor opinions in any of these cases, except Maxwell v. Dow, make reference to the legislative and contemporary history for the purposes of demonstrating that those who conceived, shaped, and brought about the adoption of the 14th Amendment intended it to nullify this court's decision in Barron v. Baltimore and thereby make the Bill of Rights applicable to the states. In Maxwell v. Dow, issue turned on whether the Bill of Rights guarantee of a jury trial was, by the 14th Amendment, extended to trials in state courts. In that case, counsel for appellant did cite from the speech of Senator Howard, which so emphatically stated the understanding of the framers of the amendment. The Committee on Reconstruction, for which he spoke, that the Bill of Rights was to be made applicable to the states by the amendment's first section. The court's opinion in Maxwell v. Dow acknowledged that counsel had cited from the speech of one of the senators, but indicated that it was not advised what other speeches were made in the Senate or in the House. The court considered, moreover, that what individual senators or representatives may have urged in debate in regard to the meaning to be given to a proposed constitutional amendment or bill or resolution does not furnish a firm ground for its proper construction, nor is it important as explanatory of the grounds upon which the members voted in adopting it. In the Twining case itself, the court was cited to a then-recent book, Guthrie, 14th Amendment to the Constitution, from 1898. A few pages of that work recited some of the legislative background of the amendment, emphasizing the speech of Senator Howard, but Guthrie did not emphasize the speeches of Congressman Bingham, nor the part he played in the framing and adoption of the first section of the 14th Amendment. <clears throat> Yet Congressman Bingham may, without extravagance, be called the Madison of the first section of the 14th Amendment. In the Twining opinion, the court explicitly declined to give weight to the historical demonstration that the first section of the amendment was intended to apply to the states the several protections of the Bill of Rights. It held that the question was no longer open because of previous decisions of this court, which, however, had not appraised the historical evidence on that subject. The court admitted that its action had resulted in giving much less effect to the 14th Amendment than some of the public men active in framing it had intended it to have, with particular reference to the guarantee against compelled testimony the court stated that much might be said in favor of the view that the privilege was guaranteed against state impairment as a privilege and immunity of national citizenship. But, as has been shown, the decisions of this court 
have foreclosed that view. None of the cases relied upon by the court today made such an analysis. For this reason, I am attaching to this dissent, by no means complete, the amendment's history. In my judgment, that history conclusively demonstrates that the language of the first section of the 14th Amendment, taken as a whole, was thought by those responsible for its submission to the people and by those who opposed its submission sufficiently explicit to guarantee that, thereafter, no state could deprive its citizens of the privileges and protections of the Bill of Rights. Whether this court ever will, or whether it now should, in the light of past decisions, give full effect to what the amendment was intended to accomplish is not necessarily essential to a decision here. However that may be, our prior decisions, including twining, do not prevent our carrying out that purpose, at least to the extent of making applicable to the states, not a mere part, as the court has, but the full protection of the Fifth Amendment's provision against compelling evidence from an accused to convict him of crime. And I further contend that the natural law formula which the court uses to reach its conclusion in this case should be abandoned as an incongruous excrescence on our Constitution. I believe that formula to be itself a violation of our Constitution in that it subtly conveys to courts at the expense of legislatures, ultimate power over public policies in fields where no specific provision of the Constitution limits legislative power. And my belief seems to be in accord with the views expressed by this Court, at least for the first two decades after the 14th Amendment was adopted. In 1872, four years after the amendment was adopted, the slaughterhouse cases came to this court. The court was not presented in that case with the evidence which showed that the special sponsors of the amendment in the House and Senate had expressly explained one of its principal purposes to be to change the Constitution as construed in Barron v. Baltimore and make the Bill of Rights applicable to the states. Nor was there reason to do so, for the state law under consideration in the slaughterhouse cases was only challenged as one which authorized a monopoly, and the brief for the challenger properly conceded that there was no direct constitutional provision against a monopoly. The argument did not invoke any specific provision of the Bill of Rights, but urged that the state monopoly statute violated the natural right of a person to do business and engage in his trade or vocation. On this basis, it was contended that bulwarks that have been erected around the investments of capital are impregnable against state legislation. These natural law arguments so suggested of the premises on which the present due process formula rests were flatly rejected by a majority of the court in the slaughterhouse cases. What the court did hold was that the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment only protected 
from state invasion such right as a person has because he's a citizen of the United States. The court enumerated some, but refused to enumerate all of these national rights. The majority of the court emphatically declined the invitation of counsel to hold that the 14th Amendment subjected all state regulatory legislation to continuous censorship by this court in order for it to determine whether it collided with this court's opinion of natural right and justice. In effect, the Slaughterhouse cases rejected the very natural justice formula the court today embraces. The court did not meet the question of whether the safeguards of the Bill of Rights were protected against state invasion by the 14th Amendment. And it specifically did not say, as the court now does, that particular provisions of the Bill of Rights could be breached by the states in part, but not breached in other respects, according to this court's notions of civilized standards, canons of decency, and fundamental justice. Later, but prior to the Twining case, this court decided that the following were not privileges or immunities of national citizenship so as to make them immune against state invasion. The Eighth Amendment's prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment, the Seventh Amendment's guarantee of a jury trial in civil cases, the Second Amendment's right of the people to keep and bear arms, the Fifth and Sixth Amendment's requirements for indictment in capital or other infamous crimes, and for trial by jury in criminal prosecutions. While it can be argued that these cases implied that no one of the provisions of the Bill of Rights was made applicable to the states as attributes of national citizenship, no one of them expressly so decided. In fact, the court in Maxwell v. Dow concluded no more than that the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States do not necessarily include all the rights protected by the first eight amendments to the federal constitution against the powers of the federal government. After the Slaughterhouse decision, the court also said that states could, despite the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, take private property without just compensation, abridge the freedom of assembly guaranteed by the First Amendment, prosecute for crime by information rather than indictment, regulate the price for storage of grain in warehouses and elevators. But this court also held, in a number of cases, that colored people must, because of the 14th Amendment, be accorded equal protection of the laws. Thus, up to and for some years after 1873, when Munn v. Illinois was decided, this court steadfastly declined to invalidate states' legislative regulation of property rights or business practices under the 14th Amendment unless there were racial discrimination involved in the state law challenged. In 
The first significant breach in this policy came in 1889 in Chicago v. Minnesota. A state's railroad rate regulatory statute was there stricken as violative of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. This was accomplished by reference to a due process formula which did not necessarily operate so as to protect the Bill of Rights' personal liberty safeguards, but which gave a new and hitherto undiscovered scope for the court's use of the Due Process Clause to protect property rights under natural law concepts. And in 1896, in Chicago B and QR v. Chicago, this court, in effect, overruled Davidson v. New Orleans by holding, under the new due process natural law formula, that the 14th Amendment forbade a state from taking private property for public use without payment of just compensation. Following the pattern of the new doctrine formalized in the foregoing decisions, the court, in 1896, applied the Due Process Clause to strike down a state statute which had forbidden certain types of contracts. In doing so, it substantially adopted the rejected argument of counsel in the slaughterhouse cases that the 14th Amendment guarantees the liberty of all persons under natural law to engage in their chosen business or vocation. In the Allgaier opinion, the court quoted with approval the concurring opinion of Mr. Justice Bradley in a second slaughterhouse case, Butcher's Union Company v. Crescent City Company, which closely followed one phase of the argument of his dissent in the original slaughterhouse cases, not that phase which argued that the Bill of Rights was applicable to the states. And in 1905, three years before the Twining case, Lochner v. New York followed the argument used in Algier to hold that the Due Process Clause was violated by a state statute which limited the employment of bakery workers to 60 hours per week and 10 hours per day. The foregoing constitutional doctrine, judicially created and adopted by expanding the previously accepted meaning of due process, marked a complete departure from the slaughterhouse philosophy of judicial tolerance of state regulation of business activities. Conversely, the new formula contracted the effectiveness of the 14th Amendment as a protection from state infringement of individual liberties enumerated in the Bill of Rights. Thus, the court's second-thought interpretation of the amendment was an about-face from the slaughterhouse interpretation and represented a failure to carry out the avowed purpose of the amendment's sponsors. This reversal is dramatized by the fact that the Hurtado case which had rejected the Due Process Clause as an instrument for preserving Bill of Rights liberties and privileges, was cited as authority for expanding the scope of that clause so as to permit this court to invalidate all state regulatory legislation it believed to be contrary to fundamental principles.
The Twining decision, rejecting the compelled testimony clause of the Fifth Amendment, and indeed rejecting all the Bill of Rights, is the end product of one phase of this philosophy. At the same time, that decision consolidated the power of the court assumed in past cases by laying broader foundations for the court to invalidate state and even federal regulatory legislation. For the Twining decision, giving separate consideration to due process and privileges or immunities went all the way to say that the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment did not forbid the states to abridge the personal rights enumerated in the first eight amendments, and in order to be certain, so far as possible, to leave this court wholly free to reject all the Bill of Rights as specific restraints upon state action. The decision declared that, even if this court should decide that the Due Process Clause forbids the states to infringe personal liberties guaranteed by the Bill of Rights, it would do so not because those rights are enumerated in the first eight amendments, but because they are of such a nature that they are included in the conception of due process law. At the same time that the Twining decision held that the states need not conform to the specific provisions of the Bill of Rights, it consolidated the power that the court had assumed under the Due Process Clause by laying even broader foundations for the court to invalidate state and even federal regulatory legislation. For, under the Twining formula, which includes non-regard for the first eight amendments, what are fundamental rights and, in accord with canons of decency, as the court said in Twining, and today reaffirms, is to be independently ascertained from time to time by judicial action. What is due process of law depends on circumstances. Thus, the power of legislatures became what this court would declare it to be at a particular time independently of the specific guarantees of the Bill of Rights, such as to the right to freedom of speech, religion and assembly, the right to just compensation for property taken for a public purpose, the right to jury trial, or the right to be secure against unreasonable searches and seizures. Neither the contraction of the Bill of Rights safeguards nor the invalidation of regulatory laws by this court's appraisal of circumstances would readily be classified as the most satisfactory contribution of this court to the nation. In 1912, four years after the Twining case was decided, a book written by Mr. Charles Wallace Collins gave the history of this court's interpretation and application of the 14th Amendment up to that time. It is not necessary for one to fully agree with all he said, in order to appreciate the sentiment of the following comment concerning the disappointments caused by this court's interpretation of the amendment. Quote, it was aimed at restraining and checking the powers of wealth and privilege. 
it was to be a charter of liberty for human rights against property rights. The transformation has been rapid and complete. It operates today to protect the rights of property to the detriment of the rights of man. It has become the Magna Carta of accumulated and organized capital, unquote. That this feeling was shared, at least in part, by members of this court is revealed by the vigorous dissents that have been written in almost every case where the Twining and Hurtado doctrines have been applied to invalidate state regulatory laws. Later decisions of this court have completely undermined that phase of the Twining doctrine, which broadly precluded reliance on the Bill of Rights to determine what is and what is not a fundamental right. Later cases have also made the Hurtado case an inadequate support for this phase of the Twining formula. For despite Hurtado and Twining, this court has now held that the 14th Amendment protects from state invasion the following fundamental rights safeguarded by the Bill of Rights. Right to counsel in criminal cases. Freedom of assembly. At the very least, certain types of cruel and unusual punishment and former jeopardy the right of an accused in a criminal case to be informed of the charge against him, and the right to receive just compensation on account of taking private property for public use. And the court has now, through the 14th Amendment, literally and emphatically applied the First Amendment to the states in its very terms. In Palco v. Connecticut, a case which involved former jeopardy only, this court re-examined the path it had traveled in interpreting the 14th Amendment since the Twining opinion was written. In Twining, the court had declared that none of the rights enumerated in the first eight amendments were protected against state invasion because they were incorporated in the Bill of Rights. But the court in Palco answered a contention that all eight applied with the more guarded statement similar to that the court had used in Maxwell v. Dow, that there is no such general rule. Implicit in this statement, and in the cases decided in the interim between Twining and Palco and since, is the understanding that some of the eight amendments do apply by their very terms. Thus, the court said in the Palco case that the 14th Amendment may make it unlawful for a state to abridge by its statutes the freedom of speech which the First Amendment safeguards against encroachment by the Congress, or the like freedom of the press, or the free exercise of religion, or the right of peaceable assembly, or the right of one accused of crime to the benefit of counsel. In these and other situations, immunities that are valid as against the federal government by force of the specific pledges of particular amendments have been found to be implicit in the concept 
of ordered liberty. And thus, through the 14th Amendment, become valid as against the state. The court went on to describe the amendments made applicable to the states as the privileges and immunities that have been taken over from the earlier articles of the Federal Bill of Rights and brought within the 14th Amendment by a process of absorption. In the Twining case, fundamental liberties were things apart from the Bill of Rights. Now it appears that at least some of the provisions of the Bill of Rights, in their very terms, satisfy the court as sound and meaningful expressions of fundamental liberty. If the Fifth Amendment's protection against self-incrimination be such an expression of fundamental liberty, I ask, and have not found a satisfactory answer, why the court today should consider that it should be absorbed in part, but not in full. Nothing in the Palco opinion requires that, when the court decides that a Bill of Rights provision is to be applied to the states, it is to be applied piecemeal. Nothing in the Palco opinion recommends that the court apply part of an amendment's established meaning and discard that part which does not suit the current style of fundamentals. The court's opinion in Twining and the dissent in that case made it clear that the court intended to leave the states wholly free to compel confessions so far as the federal constitution is concerned. Yet, in a series of cases since Twining, this court has held that the 14th Amendment does bar all American courts, state or federal, from convicting people of crime on coerced confessions. Federal courts cannot do so because of the Fifth Amendment. And state courts cannot do so because the principles of the Fifth Amendment are made applicable to the states through the 14th by one formula or another. And taking note of these cases, the court is careful to point out in its decision today that coerced confessions violate the federal constitution if secured by fear of hurt, torture, or exhaustion. Nor can a state, according to today's decision, constitutionally compel an accused to testify against himself by any other type of coercion that falls within the scope of due process. Thus, the court itself destroys, or at least drastically curtails, the very twining decision it purports to reaffirm. It repudiates the foundation of that opinion, which presented much argument to show that the compelling a man to testify against himself does not violate a fundamental right or privilege. It seems rather plain to me why the court today does not attempt to justify all of the broad twining discussion. That opinion carries its own refutation on what may be called the factual issue the court resolved. The opinion itself shows, without resort to the powerful argument in the dissent of Mr. Justice Harlan, that outside of star chamber practices and influences, the English-speaking peoples have for centuries abhorred and feared 
the practice of compelling people to convict themselves of crime. It seems rather plain to me why the court today does not attempt to justify all of the broad twining discussion. That opinion carries its own refutation on what may be called the factual issue the court resolved. The opinion itself shows, without resort to the powerful argument in the dissent of Mr. Justice Harlan, that outside of star chamber practices and influences, the English-speaking peoples have for centuries abhorred and feared the practice of compelling people to convict themselves of crime. I shall not attempt to narrate the reasons. They are well known, and those interested can read them in both the majority and dissenting opinions in the Twining case, in Boyd v. United States, and in the cases cited in notes 8, 9, 10, and 11 of Ashcraft v. Tennessee. Nor does the history of the practice of compelling testimony in this country, relied on in the Twining opinion, support the degraded rank which that opinion gave the Fifth Amendment's privilege against compulsory self-incrimination. I think the history there recited by the court belies its conclusion. The court entwining evidently was forced to resort for its degradation of the privilege to the fact that Governor Winthrop, in trying Mrs. Anne Hutchinson in 1627, was evidently not aware of any privilege against self-incrimination or conscious of any duty to respect it. Of course not. Mrs. Hutchinson was tried, if trial it can be called, for holding unorthodox religious views. People with a consuming belief that their religious convictions must be forced on others rarely ever believe that the unorthodox have any rights which should or can be rightfully respected. As a result of her trial and compelled admissions, Mrs. Hutchinson was found guilty of unorthodoxy and banished from Massachusetts. The lamentable experience of Mrs. Hutchinson and others contributed to the overwhelming sentiment that demanded adoption of a constitutional Bill of Rights. The founders of this government wanted no more such trials and punishments as Mrs. Hutchinson had to undergo. They wanted to erect barriers that would bar legislators from passing laws that encroached on the domain of belief and that would, among other things, strip courts of all public officers of a power to compel people to testify against themselves. I cannot consider the Bill of Rights to be an outworn 18th century straitjacket, as the Twining opinion did. Its provisions may be thought outdated abstractions by some. And it is true that they were designed to meet ancient evils. But they are the same kind of human evils that have emerged from century to century, wherever excessive power is sought by the few at the expense of the many. In my judgment, 
The people of no nation can lose their liberty so long as a Bill of Rights like ours survives and its basic purposes are conscientiously interpreted, enforced, and respected so as to afford continuous protection against old as well as new devices and practices which might thwart those purposes. I fear to see the consequences of the court's practice of substituting its own concepts of decency and fundamental justice for the language of the Bill of Rights as its point of departure in interpreting and enforcing that Bill of Rights. If the choice must be between the selective process of the Palco decision, applying some of the Bill of Rights to the states, or the twining rule, applying none of them, I would choose the Palco selective process. But rather than accept either of these choices, I would follow what I believe was the original purpose of the 14th Amendment, to extend to all the people of the nation the complete protection of the Bill of Rights, to hold that this court can determine what, if any, provisions of the Bill of Rights will be enforced, and if so, to what degree, is to frustrate the great design of a written constitution. Conceding the possibility that this court is now wise enough to improve on the Bill of Rights by substituting natural law concepts for the Bill of Rights, I think the possibility is entirely too speculative to agree to take that course. I would therefore hold in this case that the full protection of the Fifth Amendment's proscription against compelled testimony must be afforded by California. This I would do because of reliance upon the original purpose of the 14th Amendment. It is an illusory apprehension that literal application of some or all of the provisions of the Bill of Rights to the states would unwisely increase the sum total of the powers of this court to invalidate state legislation. The federal government has not been harmfully burdened by the requirement that enforcement of federal laws affecting civil liberty conform literally to the Bill of Rights. Who would advocate its repeal? It must be conceded, of course, that the natural law due process formula, which the court today reaffirms, has been interpreted to limit substantially this court's power to prevent state violations of the individual civil liberties guaranteed by the Bill of Rights. But this formula has also been used in the past, and it can be used in the future, to license this court in considering regulatory legislation to roam at large in the broad expanses of policy and morals and to trespass all too freely on the legislative domain of the states as well as the federal government. Since Marbury v. Madison was decided, the practice has been firmly established, for better or worse, that courts can strike down legislative enactments which violate the Constitution. This process, of course, involves interpretation. And since words can have many meanings, 
interpretation obviously may result in contraction or extension of the original purpose of a constitutional provision, thereby affecting policy. But to pass upon the constitutionality of statutes by looking to the particular standards enumerated in the Bill of Rights and other parts of the Constitution is one thing. To invalidate statutes because of the application of natural law deemed to be above and unidentified by the Constitution is another. In the one instance, courts proceeding within clearly marked constitutional boundaries seek to execute policies written into the Constitution. In the other, they roam at will in the limitless area of their own beliefs as to the reasonableness and actually select policies, a responsibility which the Constitution entrusts to the legislative representatives of the people. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to what SCOTUS wrote us.